Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Joseph J. Ellis. Joseph J. Ellis is a renowned historian of the period covered by the American Revolution and the early Republic. And today we are discussing his newest book, The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents. 1773 to 1783, published by Liverite. Welcome, Mr. Ellis. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, Mr. Ellis, what is the thesis of your book? Um, To suggest that it's like a mathematical formula that has a thesis is a little bit misrepresentative. It's got several stories and and thematic uh, threads that... um, But to try and make it simple, um, the American founding is the big bang in the uh, political, American political, and in fact, the global political universe. And I'm looking at an explosion and trying to explain how politically and uh, socially and ideologically the Americans won the war against uh, the major uh, military power in the world. Um, And um, what the what the people involved in it at the time thought they were doing. And it's an attempt to recover what is essentially a lost world um, uh, to take you back and dip you into that world. Um, And at a time when journalists are quite focused on the present and their noses are up against the window of the present. This is a book about what we might call unbreaking news. Anyway, uh, it's, it's uh, my attempt to tell a story that modern day readers can identify and become involved in and learn about um, how we, the United States, came into existence. How would you say this book differs from the other books that you've written in this time period of American history? Uh, boy, I've written 12 books. This is my 13th. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, But this is the chronologically, uh, if I knew I was writing a history of the American founding, this should have been the first book I wrote. Instead, it's the last one. And uh, I might be writing other things later, but the, this is the first chapter in the founding, the war for independence um, and um, its immediate aftermath um, and how we win the war. So it's about battles, but it's also mostly about politics and what it felt like on the ground. Um, uh, it's, um, it's like other books in the sense that it does pay attention to particular individuals and leaders. And so I am a kind of a closet biographer who wants to recover people like Washington and Adams and, and Jefferson, all of whom are in this, but also uh, people that don't make it onto the stage in many others' histories. Uh, a guy called, well, Nathaniel Green, who's Washington's chief uh, officer, um, 
John Dickinson, who's forgotten by many Americans, um, women like uh, Katie Green, so that it's an attempt to recover a story. Um, and in that sense, it's in keeping with books that I've written in the past, like Founding Brothers. It tends to zoom in at a particular moment to do a deep dive into what's actually happening um, so that um, a reader feels that uh, he or she is, uh, is back there in that foreign country and uh, like a tourist almost um, and learning to speak their language and think in their, their ways. In that sense, it's, it's part of what I'm do I've been doing. I said that it should have gone first, but because in the interim, uh, I've written biographies of Washington, Jefferson, and Adams. It means that I acquired or assembled or gathered together a lot of evidence that I wouldn't have had if I started uh, at this point uh, 20 years ago. And um, so I hope that what it, what it is, is uh, readers of Ellis's work can say, oh yes, this is in his tradition, but it's also looking at a fundamentally different moment um, and uh, can see both familiarity and also um, distinctions that are a function of that different moment. Would it be true to say that in this book in particular, but probably in, in uh, all of your books, you as a historian look at the past with what one may characterize as a Rankian sense of empathy for people who um, are in a different historical time frame than ourselves? Yes, um, Ranka would be good. Um, I think that um, I, I'm, I'm a professional historian and I'm not just a journalist who likes to do history. Um, and, um, and at Yale, I acquired the conviction as a sort of premise that the historian's first task is to understand the past on its own terms, to recover that understanding what people thought they were doing, the strains under which they were functioning and the differences they are, the, diff the different ways they think. And, um, and, uh, and only after you've done that, can you make judgments, um, presentistic judgments. Uh, the worst possible fallacy uh, for a, a historian in my judgment is the presentistic fallacy to go back and cherry pick the evidence to find what supports your own political or ideological convictions um, and to pretend that's history. Um, so um, uh, it's uh, in American history now, uh, there are uh, devoted historians who are really going back to endorse their own values and their own political agenda. This is true on the left and on the right. And um, historians cannot be objective, that even, even economists who claim to be objective are fooling themselves. They can make detachment, however, a goal. Uh, it's a goal that will always be difficult to achieve, but that's the goal we should strive for. And, um, and if you come back expecting to find demigods, um, you're, really, uh, you're really already off on the wrong foot. All these people are real human beings. They're complicated. They're flawed, just like we are. And, um, and they're attempting to make sense of a moment that, in retrospect, is going to be one of the most uh, consequential moments in American history. But um, we need humility when we begin our effort. 
and we need not impose our values on them. You're right in the preface to the book, quote, Great Britain never had a realistic chance to win the war, unquote. But surely is this not the surely this is not the case. I think as many military historians would argue that without the intervention of France and Spain, an American victory, a military victory, I should say, would be hard to imagine over the United Kingdom. Well, it's interesting what British historians um, in general have said is that uh, they that Great Britain, if they had stayed longer, could have won the war. Um, and um, I think uh, my perspective on this comes from, well, let's put it this way. Um, American readers should recognize the dilemma the British faced during um, the war. Um, they stepped onto the stage in 1770s as the dominant new world power, brimming over with confidence, economically and militarily supreme, assured that there was no way that they could possibly lose this war. Um, that sounds very familiar to most American readers who remember Vietnam and remember Afghanistan and know that both of those wars for the United States were inherently unwinnable. The problem that the British faced apart from the Atlantic Ocean, um, the British were thinking in terms of uh, their easy uh, domination of both Scotland and Ireland. The American theater was so much larger, so much further away, but also uh, they misread the, situ the strategic situation. They thought that the resistance to the British, to British rule was paper thin or like an egg. Instead, it was a nut. Um, and while you could argue they could have stayed, they could have stayed for a hundred years. They would have also had to invest about 50,000 troops in the entire British army it was only 48,000. They would have had to step away from the rest of their empire to devote themselves exclusively to this. And after that time, I'm not sure what would have happened because that the, uh, the, the, the American theater was inherently unconquerable. Um, they, they had an army of conquest. They needed an army of occupation and a much, much larger army to win this war. Um, I do think it would have been possible for the Americans to lose the war. It would be impossible for the British to win it, but it would be possible for the Americans to lose it. And they almost did by refusing to support the Continental Army and provide the kind of economic and military support uh, most of the military support that they could conjure up was local militia, but that also uh, was going to make it difficult for the British. Every victory, it was a British admiral said it was like a ship going through the, the, uh, the ocean and behind it, the waves were closing over the wake that they just created. As soon as the British army left, the Americans took over again um, and any loyalists there were perjured, were prosecuted or persecuted. Um, I'm going on a little long here, but um, uh, the uh, British presumption that the war was easy, easy to win was from the beginning an inherently flawed view. Um, and it was based on a sense of hubris and supremacy that Americans should recognize as um, uh, something that they have something to learn from. Why, in your opinion, was the sovereignty argument 
of Blackstone and others, I should say sovereign parliamentary sovereignty argument, uh, one of the prime causes of the American crisis in the 1760s. You're right. I, and I mentioned, I talk, talk about this early in the book. Um, uh, essentially, the British inherited a huge new empire in North America because of the Treaty of Paris in 1763. And, um, and they recognized that prior to that time, they had done very little to govern it or to uh, impose any kind of coherent governance structure, and that they needed to do that. Um, and many people were trying to figure out how to do that. And it necessarily involved giving parliament control over the governance process. And, um, and it is uh, Blackstone who makes the argument in 1765 that in any empire or any major nation, um, even Aristotle would argue this, um, there needs to be one final source of sovereignty. And with regard to the British Empire at that point in time, it could not be the king, it had to be parliament. They actually said the king and parliament, which was the vestige of the glorious revolution. But this created the, the context for the view that parliament had the right to tax and legislate for the colonies in a way that it had never done before. And the colonists perceived that as a fundamental change in the rules of the game and challenged it. Interestingly, they didn't challenge it on the basis of natural rights. They challenged it on the basis of their rights as Englishmen. Um, Englishmen could not be taxed without their consent, although of course many of them were being so taxed in places like Liverpool and Manchester. But the point here is the, the notion that there must be a single source of sovereignty. Um, later on, it was clear that that was not necessary. Um, Franklin proposes many alternative ways of doing business, which would have led the British to recognize that giving the colonists a certain control over their own domestic policy would not have harmed the, their control over them. They would have still been sub subject to the Navigation Act. What you would have got then, a hundred years before the, it happened, is the British Commonwealth. Um, if they had treated the United States as they were subsequently going to treat Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, we would have never had an American Revolution. Um, and that's what the colonists were calling for at the time. Um, so, and in the United States, in the later, when they're facing similar governance issues in the Continental Congress, one of the issues that they could, they abandoned is the notion of a single source of sovereignty. And they call that principle federalism, that the states are sovereign in some respects and the federal government in others. So that the sovereignty argument itself is, is abandoned as part of this new modern nation-sized American Republic. And if the Brits had recognized that at the time, I don't think we would have ever had the war. So in essence, uh, you could say that the fundamental British failure was a failure of imagination. Uh, yes, um, but it was um, it was based on a presumption that they were uh, that they had that well one British general said we can I can take one regiment march from New England down to Florida and geld all the males and um, uh, and 
they they did had they it was a base not just on a lack of in, a lack of imagination but a lack of information. Um, they didn't. They made a strategic misjudgment that was, and they had people telling them that was going to that was a mistake. Um, General Gage in Boston was trying to tell them this. Um, William Pitt, the greatest statesman of the era, was trying to tell them this. Um, Edmund Burke was trying to tell them this, uh, but they 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 just couldn't listen. And the ultimate villain is not the right word, but the the leader of the British position is George III. He is the person who insists on imposing this uh, this order on the colonies because. He has what Americans are not recognized uh, again as something called the domino theory. If we let Americans have their way, what happens to Canada? What happens to Jamaica? What happens to Malta? What happens to India? And they see this as falling dominoes. And if he, they have to take a stand here, this is what the Americans will later call credibility in the American flaws in Vietnam, credibility. Um, and um, the truth is that uh, that they didn't need to do that. Um, but at any rate, um, uh, whether it's imagination or uh, a lack of a sense of history or um, uh, a hubris that comes naturally with the level of power that by that time the British Empire had achieved. Why do you not mention the Quebec Act of 1774 is one of the major grievances of the American colonists in the run-up to the Declaration of Independence. I mentioned it in a kind of footnote or an asterisk note at the bottom of the page. Um, I'm trying to offer the reader a reasonably concise a, a, a synopsis of what's called the Coercive Acts, or in America they're called the Intolerable Acts, one of which is the Quebec Act, as you say. Um, because it doesn't have any direct bearing on the specific crisis that's going to unfold in Boston at the time um, and lead to the Boston Tea Party and that to the, um, the British militarization of the problem. I could have spent 10 or 20 pages on it, but in my view, most American readers want to go forward with the story. And, they, and um, you have to make choices like this. Um, History is an infinite number of facts and uh, interpretive options, and you have to make choices. And in this case, I said, I want you to know it exists, but I'm not going to go into it. Percentage wise, how much support would you say in terms of the overall population of the 13 colonies did the movement for independence enjoy circa 1775, 1776? It was in a transition at that moment, um, as uh, I think that the response to the uh, British occupation of Boston was, um, and that's where the term the cause comes from. They called it the common cause. Uh, all the other colonies um, responded um, in a way to support Boston. In a sense, the British strategy backfired. They wanted to isolate Boston and say to the rest of the colonies, this is gonna to happen to you if you don't go along with our parliamentary, um, uh, uh, the parliament's rules governing you. Instead, it had just the opposite effect. It backfired 
and all the colonies came together. But at that time, they weren't coming together to demand independence. They were coming together to demand that the British change their policy. And so there is a two-year hiatus between um, the outbreak of hostilities at Lexington and Concord in 1775 and the actual declaration in Ju July of 76. Notice that. So I call that's the reason I called it prudence dictates <clears throat> in that chapter that the Americans <clears throat> are prepared to cross the Rubicon um, and go to war, but they want to wait and give Great Britain an opportunity to come to their senses and avoid this unnecessary war. And that's what they do. And so Americans at the ground level at that stage are simply just holding firm, but they don't have to make a commitment to independence. And when that moment comes, it becomes in, in the summer of 76, primarily because the Americans believe they have no choice. The British have, are sending 32,000 troops and 10,000 sailors and the largest armada ever to cross the Atlantic to impose their rule on them in New York, um, in Long Island, in Manhattan. And at that stage, they feel they have no choice. Uh, and so the major reason bringing them all together is the sense that, excuse me, in the background, it, that George III has declared his independence of them. Uh, they have no choice. Um, over time, what we can talk about this later, even what is the, what is the sense of allegiance at the ground level? Um, the key fact is the British never are able to uh, maintain complete control of the countryside at any time. Once the British army moves beyond the coast and beyond the protection of the British fleet, it is in enemy territory and capable of being um, uh, what they call Burgoyne later on. Um, but <clears throat> the initial commitment of the colonies and of the colonists is based on the fact that they are about ready to be invaded by troops, including Hessian mercenaries, poised to kill them and rape their women. And they're already in the process of using the British fleet to destroy American towns on the coastline. Port, what is now Portland, Maine was burned to the ground. Norfolk was burned to the ground. All that is happening in a way that makes them, the colonists persuade themselves that they really have no choice. Uh, how representative of colonial, I'm sorry, would it be true to say that John Dickerson was highly representative of colonial opinion circa 1774 and for part of 1775, but by 1776, he was highly unrepresentative of colonial opinion? I think that's fair. And I, I'm, I'm, in the book, I'm trying to recover Dickinson in a fair-minded way because over time he becomes famous as the man who does not sign the Declaration of Independence. Um, from 1765 to 1775, I think Dickens is the most significant American writer and thinker, pamphleteer, who shapes the American argument against British rule and against the violation of their rights as Englishmen. And as what he calls himself the farmer, although he's not a farmer, he's a very well-to-do Quaker um, in Pennsylvania and Delaware. But that in the play, the American play, 1776, he comes off as the guy that just doesn't get it. And um, John Adams is the one telling us that independence is inevitable. We're waiting, that, that 
Dickinson is waiting for a Messiah who will never come. Um, Dickinson puts his faith in George III. He thinks that George III will come to his senses. Little does he know, and he eventually has to know, that the last person in, in, in the British ministry that's ever going to support the Americans is George III. Um, so I like, I'd like to recover him for modern readers to also recover the, the kind of prudent revolution we're talking about. This is not like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution. The people leading it um, are moderates. They're, to talk about a moderate revolutionary seems to be a contradiction in terms. They want this, they are reluctant to move um, towards independence until it's absolutely impossible to avoid. And, um, and so I say one of the most forgotten paragraphs in the Declaration is Jefferson's paragraph that, that, that Dickinson could have written, um, that essentially says that governments ought not be uh, discarded for loose and transient reasons. Um, and prudence dictates that you stay with what you've got until it's absolutely necessary to change. I see recovering that mentality, and Dickinson is the epitome of that mentality, is, is something we need to do. Uh, in the case of John Adams, who you write considerably about, not only in this book, but in, in, um, in the past as well, would it be correct to say that he was a radical up to 1776 and became a conservative thereafter? I don't think so. I think that's uh, it's mess messing with categories that come together in Adams's mind in a different way. Adams, if you by radical, you mean a person who is committed to American independence earlier than other members of the Continental Congress. Absolutely, yes, he is. Remember, however, he's from Boston, as is his cousin, Sam Adams. They're the ones bearing the brunt of the British, uh, uh, British invasion. And um, however, Adams is a kind of conservative revolutionary conservative in the sense that he knows that revolutions should happen as evolutions if they're to have any meaningful uh, future. Um, that, uh, and as the implications of the cause come rolling out, the cause says that any government that imposes coercively its power over you is illegitimate. And, it, and there are all kinds of consequences of that. Let's do away and do away with the property qualification. What about women's rights? What about slavery? As those things pop onto the radar screen, Adams is the one who says no. I think from a British point of view, Adams is a Burkean, a conservative. Um, he will later oppose the French Revolution as a misguided venture. Um, but um, he's probably the best read of the founders. Um, as you said, I've written about him in other contexts. I sort of love him uh, because he gives you, as a historian and biographer, more information about what he's really thinking and what he's really feeling. And his correspondence with Abigail, uh, 1,200 letters, is just a treasure trove for a historian trying to recover what someone was really thinking and feeling in that moment of, of improvisation. Um, so... Uh, he's made a comeback among historians in the last 20 or 30 years. We no longer have to think of our founders as, as perfect demigods, and he is the most imperfect of them all in, in, in terms of his uh, hastiness. And in the French court, they'll think of him as a buffoon. But 
in this moment of 75, 76, he's the one that leads the way to the, to the realization that the independence is inevitable. And in that sense, um, he's a radical, but not in the larger sense of the kind of government he thinks is possible. To what do you attribute George Washington's strange command decisions during the retreat after the Battle of Long Island? Um, I talk about this, as you know, and to give the listener a sense that um, the British, if the British ever had a chance to win the war, it came at the very beginning because the American decision to defend New York was itself strategically um, misguided. New York is an archipelago, a series of islands. Whoever controls the sea controls the battle. And he knew that. Washington had been given a reward, uh, but he felt he was obliged to defend it for two reasons. One, that the Congress had told him to do that and, and civilian control of the military was something he didn't even need to think about. That was a given. But the second was Washington brought to battle the same um, honor-driven uh, instincts that many British officers had too, that it was, it was like a summons to duel and you could not refuse without losing your honor. So if General and, and Admiral Howe land in New York, you've got to oppose them there. That was misguided, uh, fundamentally misguided. And, um, and the escape across the East River in very late August of 76 was a miracle. And, and, um, and he constantly, even while they're on Manhattan, defers attempting to have a battle that recovers some sense of uh, honor and some sense of uh, he's, he's concerned about the hearts and minds of Americans out there, too, in terms of winning something. Um, but um, in American history, I would say Washington is the greatest general of all, but no American general lost more battles. And eventually, it is because Washington has a fundamental strategic insight that he differs. Think about this, too. Most of the great generals in world history end up losers. Um, Napoleon, um, Rommel, uh, Robert E. Lee. Washington loses a lot of battles, but he ends up a winner because he recognizes that he does not have to win the war. The British have to win the war. And in, all he has to do is keep the Continental Army intact, um, which is itself not easy. But um, uh, he is in that moment that you described, it almost all falls apart. And reading his letters at that time, he's aware of it and is almost um, uh, committed to the notion that he's have to, gonna have to go down with the troops and, um, and that that's his fate. Um, so it's a low point in the war and a low point in his life, but he overcomes it. Uh, perhaps the most important value that a general can have is resilience and he had in spades. Why was the Continental Army's winter in Valley Forge so important for the outcome of the war? Valley Forge was another inflection point and the, the, the cause could have died again. Um, they gathered together about 10,000 American uh, troops in this place called Valley Forge and spent the winter there. Um, about 1,200 people died during the, mostly from exposure and malnutrition. Uh, um, and this is the place where the few, as they call themselves, come together as a hardcore 
of officers and troops to say essentially um, we're gonna we're gonna we're not going to go away. We're not going to die. We're not going to fade into the middle distance. Um, and it's an important moment to mark because it shows that there is a fundamental lack of support in the American states. By now, there's states um, for the Continental Army. They're afraid of the Continental Army as a standing army. Um, most Americans are born, lived out their lives and died within a three-day three horse ride. They don't think nationally, they think locally. And, they, and so patriotism doesn't die, but it recedes to the local level um, where it's very important. Because that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons the British never, <clears throat> never win the countryside, but for support for their continental army, um, it's kept on, on uh, short rations. It's, the, think about this, demographically, the, the United States could have fielded an army of 80,000 easily. Washington asked for 60,000. He never got more than 12,000. And at the end of most recruitment seasons, as the people were leaving and others coming, it was down to three to 4,000. And Valley Forge is the place where he could have just gone out of existence, just simply dissolved. And it doesn't. Um, and at the end of Valley Forge, the French, or, uh, the, the French treaty is announced, and that changes the coloration of the war completely. But Valley Forge is another critical moment. It could have gone the other way, but it doesn't. Why did Lord Cornwallis's Southern strategy ultimately fail? Boy, you've got succinct ways to say really complicated things. General Cornwallis takes command of the British Army in the South in uh, 1779, and um, they easily conquered or captured Charleston. And here's where the problem is that I was talking about earlier is going to is going to emerge. He's only commanding about 4,000 troops and Cornwallis is perhaps next to Howe, the most talented combat leader in the British army. Um, he comes back from England, his wife, uh, uh, who's an elegant lady dies and he never quite recovers from that and gives his total loyalty to the British army to trying to win the war, which he himself thinks is probably unwinnable. Um, but he leads the, the uh, British army through the South. And the problem that they have is when they win a battle that generates resp response from the local militia to, to retaliate. When they lose a battle, that generates a, a loss of loyalist support. Whether they win or lose makes no difference. They keep having the same effect, namely that the Southern theater, which is really vicious and has terrorist groups on both sides committing atrocities at the local level. Um, it's just impossible for the British army to control territory. Um, and Cornwallis discovers that and eventually says, let's move the war to Virginia um, this, this, the climate in the, in the, in the Carolinas and Georgia is killing a lot of his troops. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a den of iniquity for him. And, um, uh, and again, both sides in the South, um, terrorist acts. If you're, uh, if you're like, say a South Carolina farmer and, uh, the British come through, you can expect them to take the male of the family out have him watch as the soldiers rape his, his wife and children. 
then hang him and quarter him and then burn the house down. That's what's going on. And it's going down on the other side too. So it's a really vicious war and Cornwallis's army does its very best. And I think at the end of the war, when they're looking for generals to blame and looking for, for that kind of blame figure is part of losing, they, they don't blame Cornwallis. They, they call Cornwallis the British Hannibal. And he never, never is given the same kind of uh, critical treatment as the other British generals, Howe, Burgoyne, um, and goes on to a very successful career later in India. Uh, who were the true Whigs and why were they opposed to Robert Morris's fiscal program? The true Whigs were uh, American representatives in the Continental Congress and mostly in the local, uh, the state legislatures who believed strongly that the American Revolution was not a, a war to create an American nation. Um, in that sense, Abraham Lincoln's first sentence in the most famous speech in American history is historically incorrect. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. No, they didn't. They brought forth the confederation of sovereign states provisionally united to come together to win the war and go their separate ways. The true Whigs were those who made the case and um, very prominent people like Sam Adams uh, was, was in favor of this, um, that the, the, there was no such thing as a powerful national government and there shouldn't be. That wasn't the legacy of the revolution. But what that meant was the man you referred to, Robert Morris, who's the equivalent of the first secretary of treasury under the, the government then, I had no power to require taxes from the states. Um, the United States is running by that time a $40 million debt. Um, it's growing by 5,000, uh, but going every year uh, by five, uh, 5 million. And, um, and um, that, that they have a, they've created a confederation that is incapable of governing and incapable of overseeing the war in the latter stages. But true Whigs believe that's okay, that what we want is local control, state control, and any attempt to impose a national government is a violation of the Whig principles we claim we were fighting for. Um, and they're gonna end up, when the book says, and it's discontents that caused this, and it's discontent, at the end of the war, we are incapable of functioning as a nation state. We are incapable of taking action to end slavery, and we're incapable of taking action to impose a just settlement on the Native American issue. Because we are not a nation, we are a confederation of sovereign states, and that's what the true Whigs think we should be. How did the new United States manage to assimilate the 10 to 15, perhaps even 20% of the population who during the period covered by your book were loyalists? Um, yeah, the, the studies on the loyalists have, have increased in number and initially in the you know, first hundred years after the war, all the loyalists are demeaned and vilified and you know, as non-patriots, et cetera. That has changed a lot. In fact, a lot of the recent scholarships is making them into kind of attractive victims, if you will. We know about 19 to 20% of the 2 million whites in America at the time were loyalists, so that's a spectrum of, of, of there. The ones who 
were actively committed to service in the British Army, um, eventually those that survived joined the British Army in, in the evacuation out of New York. And there's about 60,000 of them. Um, uh, the others, that means there's something like 400,000 that aren't, aren't in that category. And there's not good studies of this, um, but I think most of them left the towns they were living in. They were ostracized. Forced, some of them moved across the, the Appalachians to find new territory. But most of them, over time, simply were forgiven. They were like sinners in the congregation or were welcomed back to the congregation, or their children were welcomed back to the congregation. Um, so that unlike the French or the Russian revolutions, there are no guillotines or firing squad walls. The worst that can happen to you, and it's bad, is if you're banished. Um, but uh, one of the reasons there is such a large diaspora in the American Revolution is because we don't kill them. We let them go away. For you, and in the case of this book, what would be the enduring legacy for American history of the period covered? Boy, that's another succinct statement of a huge question. Um, this is the first chapter in the American founding. Um, uh, and I think that out of it comes a legacy that is still very much alive and we're still living with its complications and its um, implications. Is government us or is government them? Both traditions exist at the end of the war. Washington, Franklin, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton all believe the government is us. And that will lead to the Constitutional Convention. But the majority of Americans, especially at the local level, do not think that way. Um, and so if you're embedded in America right now and you're wondering why we can't get herd immunity uh, for vaccines, it's because part of the revolutionary tradition is to say that what government tells you to do is not something you need to do and sovereignty resides inside your own self. Um, uh, so, and by the way, the entire American Revolution was conducted during a smallpox epidemic, which killed over 100,000 civilians. Um, but that knowing also that the great tragedy that will, one of the great tragedies, the greatest tragedy that will emerge from the, the revolutionary era is the failure to take action to put slavery on the road to extinction. If you basically say that government cannot make domestic policy, the federal government, that means it's gonna be almost impossible to take action to end slavery gradually. And slavery and racism, are the, the racism is the uh, toxic residue of slavery that is still, of course, very much with us. So we can see these forces congealing as in their moments of birth as we look back from the 21st century. Um, and that's the reason why I started by saying that this is about unbreaking news. Um, we're still living the legacy of what we created in that 1770s era. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? That the great heroes of the American Revolution are not perfect figures. They're imperfect like us. 
In fact, if they were perfect, what in heaven's name would we have to learn from them? Um, and that um, expanding your own memory back in time by reading history, and especially American, if you're an American, American history at its very founding, um, will prepare you for the kind of questions and challenges that the present and the future is gonna throw at you, unforeseeable. Build up that reservoir of memory. You don't have to read my book, but uh, I'd love it if you did. But the, uh, the expansion of your memory back in time is something that is uh, being lost as the internet makes it difficult for some people to even read a book. And, um, and I'm hoping that people can sustain that commitment to an understanding of the past um, and that I believe they will likely be citizens capable of moving effectively into the future. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Joseph Ellis, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. Thank you, Mr. Ellis. Thanks so much for having me.